Former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair speaks to Monocle about how Europe can clear a path out of the pandemic and he postulates on the probability of vaccine passports. Next up, are you a good neighbour? We look at a new platform in Japan on which nearby residents can be reported for bad behaviour and ask whether technology helps or hinders such conversations. Plus, our usual end-of-week ramble through the half-baked happenings that befell our strange soul of a correspondent in New York City. We also peek under the cover of the latest latest issue of Monocle's springy March issue of the magazine, which hit newsstands and thundered through letterboxes of our subscribers yesterday. Monocle's correspondents are here to discuss these stories today on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 26th of February. I'm Josh Fennett. And joining me today here in Studio One at Midori House in London are Monocle 24's head of radio and full head of lustrous lockdown locks, Tom Edwards, and the always impeccably turned out Carlotta Ribello. Welcome back to the show, both of you. Carlotta, great to have you here in Andrew Tuck's stead. Um, For a bit of context, I'm sure most people know this, but you're a producer on The Urbanist as well as working across our news shows. And um, I bet you're looking forward to discussing the idea of neighbourliness later, aren't you? Of course, always, Josh. I'm a great neighbour. Are you a good neighbour, though? Yes, yes, I am. I can say that with full confidence. (laughs) I I want some illustration here. How are you a good neighbour? If someone turned up uh, looking a bit like Tom Edwards, a bit dishevelled, a bit bedraggled, um, and demanded a cup of sugar off you, would you, A, furnish him with a cup of sugar, B, quickly call the authorities? Well, I highly doubt any of my neighbours look like Tom Edwards looks today, but Interesting. I would definitely help them out. I'm a great neighbour. Subscribe to the community volunteer group during COVID, where we help um, a few of the local residents in my building uh, with shopping, if they're shielding and all of that. Also help with the neighbourhood um, food stand to help homeless people in Hoxton. So I am an excellent neighbour. That's an unexpectedly earnest answer and puts probably both of us to shame. Um, Tom, you're looking a little bilious after gorging on an improbable number of beignets from a local bakery today. Are we confident we can get you through this evening's broadcast? Uh, How many beignets is an unacceptably large amount? And I should point out they are mini beignets, not the full-sized. What's too many? How many is too many? Calorifically, I'd say if you had any more than two, you'd be in trouble. Oh, you are in trouble, aren't you? I'd say you're in trouble. I'm in a small amount of trouble. Interesting. Well, we'll see how he bears up for the rest of the show, listeners. If you hear any retching, um, <laughs> there is a possibility it may be coming from our studio. We don't know where you're listening, so it could be coming from your house as well. Um, we're going to begin today taking a look at the vaccine efforts against COVID-19. The European Union is struggling with persuading people to take the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, largely due to some comments made by a few leaders, including Emmanuel Macron, who have publicly cast doubt on the efficacy of it in the use of over 65s. Despite the fact that this concern has since proved unfounded, an estimated four out of every five UK-developed vaccines within the EU has yet to be distributed. At the same time, countries around the world are wondering how best to return to some semblance of normality, and many are seriously mulling over the idea of vaccination passports to help ease future travel restrictions. Today... This is a news show. EU leaders concluded a two-day summit on the COVID-19 pandemic, and if you can believe it, there is widespread division on whether countries should issue their own certificates or whether the scheme should be managed by a top-down EU protocol. Who knows? Well, I'll tell you who might know more than most. The UK's former Prime Minister, Tony Blair, who spoke to Monocle 24 recently. Let's hear what he had to say. 
Countries will want to do international travel again, but they're going to be very concerned about it. One of the reasons why we spend a lot of time as an institute trying to make sure vaccination gets underway in the poorest parts of the world is that what will happen is those poor parts of the world will be cut off from the international community if you don't give them the means of, of being part of what, as I say, I think was just inevitable that it will happen, that countries like Britain will say, well, if you want to come in here, we need to know what your disease status is, that you've either been vaccinated or you've had a, a negative quality verifiable test. People can make their own judgments about it, but as from a policymaker's point of view, if countries are already demanding proof of negative tests now and quarantine, why on earth, once vaccination is, is universal, are people not going to be asking what your vaccination status is? The rather unmistakable voice there of former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. Tom, on the subject of the poor uptake of certain vaccines, particularly the Oxford jab in an EU context, how much of the current scepticism do you feel is down to certain leaders? I'm thinking of the German health minister, more than I like to. I'm thinking of Emmanuel Macron, sometimes at night. Um, them openly questioning it. Um, has that affected how willing people are to take it? I think it definitely has. And I think there's a case uh, for both of those individuals to answer. Macron, some of his remarks were cravenly irresponsible. We should not, however attribute all of the blame uh, to those individuals or to others who've asked the questions. I mean, that stat you mentioned earlier, is it 80% of the vaccines that have been dispatched to the whole block just sitting presumably in, you know, they're being warehoused somewhere. Um, that's staggering given the urgency. But this is not just to do with um, those remarks, which I think in Macron's case certainly were although he might not admit it, politically motivated. They're also down in certain markets, like France, to a staggeringly high level of public scepticism um, about, about public vaccination programmes, the roots of which are far deeper and, and much more complex. I think what's interesting about what Tony Blair says, and he's now talking in that context from the clip about, you know, the simple expediency of saying what's your status you know we we should or most of us have these tracking apps um which can readily be converted eff effectively into a a vaccine a vaccine record what he's saying is be pragmatic and i think the big takeaways on a on a intra-governmental level and on a on a local level are to trust in the primacy and the efficacy of good science done well and if possible done locally um, and to be pragmatic these kinds of challenges require efficiency, objectivity, but they also require some haste. Um, and they also require a willingness to make some mistakes. We've talked before about the success of the vaccination programme in this country being because it was quite speculative in its character in terms of how it was financed and how aggressive the timetabling was. So I think you need to balance all of these things t t together. And it is interesting that, you know, Tony Blair has been pretty consistent throughout the crisis in terms of taking to task a pretty broad church of individuals and institutions for not making good decisions and for calling good moves where they've been made as well. And it, it just, it, it's interesting. It, it shows you how much more freedom you have when you're not the big office holder anymore uh, to maybe kind of call things as they are. And actually that can be quite useful having that sort of perspective. 
And a couple of things to pick up on there. You know, it's not to say that the, one of the reasons that the AstraZeneca vaccine hasn't been used as widely is that it's more easy to be stored for longer in conditions that are available to more people. So we're going to be watching that story closely on Monocle 24. Carlotta, um, here in the UK, the vaccination programme appears to be going rather well. And yesterday the Queen intervened. Um, I wasn't that swayed by her, but every single UK paper um, deigned to put it on uh, their front cover. And her message was, it sort of was, don't be selfish. It was actually phrased as, think of others when you're getting the vaccine. Um, I wanted to ask you how important you think the messaging is um, around all of this, because as we know from following the newspapers, listening to the radio, actually getting a handle on what's going on is almost a full-time job. Oh, absolutely. And messaging here has been throughout this crisis uh, from the very beginning and it will continue to be so the key element. On the point particularly of the Queen, now, of course, different people have different takes on the monarchy and its existence. But regardless of that, you cannot deny that she can act as a unifying force. And and I know a lot of the papers picked up on this, which is the similarities with an address she made back in the 50s when uh, Prince Charles and Princess Anne um, took the polio vaccine and the fact that the Queen broke protocol to make sure the press reported on that actually encouraged millions that were sceptical about the vaccine to go and get it. So a few similarities of the reality we're seeing now, people that are not sure if they can trust how quickly this was turned around Around, we can kind of sense and see and understand why this statement um, came up. And as someone who you know is not originally from this country, live in a country that hasn't had a monarchy in the last century, um, I seeing the figure of the queen making a statement like that is quite inspiring, regardless of what you might think about the monarchy as an institution. Um, you kind of want to believe the apolitical um, narrative behind it and the idea that, OK, regardless of everything else, she is a unifying force beyond the UK, you know, of the Commonwealth as well, to encourage people to get the vaccine. And if she can do it, what would be your argument not to? I can understand that narrative. I just want to pick up on something on the vaccine passports discussion um, of the clip that we heard there. Um of course, we talk about, you know, the complications and the standard approach, or even if this is ethical. Uh, I want to give the example of Portugal, where since from the moment you're born, you are issued a vaccination bulletin. So it's a little booklet that everyone has associated with your national ID number. And there are certain vaccines that you need to have, like they're mandatory. Otherwise, you as a child cannot be enrolled in school, even as an adult cannot enroll in university. Certain jobs on the um, government uh, and civil service require you to have them up to date. So for me, coming with that background, I don't find the idea of a document saying I had or did not have a vaccine, a weird thing, because I've had that all my life. Um, and we live in a world where to travel to certain countries, uh, we know it's required to have certain vaccines, and we're more than happy to get those before our trip. So why would this be any different? Yeah, I definitely hear you. A, a lot of those are, are kind of voluntary, though. If you're told to get a, um, a jab for Japanese B encephalitis before you go to Vietnam, it's so you don't get it. No one at the border is stopping you entering. And I suppose there might be a few people out there who, rather than out of a rabid sense of anti-establishment, um, anti-vaxxer um, fervour, might think to themselves, we haven't seen um, how these are tested on people who are pregnant. I'm going to leave off getting my vaccine until we can see some research on that. So I think it's 
a bit of an issue about people who are enfranchised and disenfranchised. Tom, one more question on this, because I know that our producer can't shout at me through the glass because she's actually in the studio. She has to maintain the veneer of um, enjoying my presence on this show. But um, Tony Blair's kind of rise, you, you spoke of it there. He's been like a phoenix from the flames, hasn't he? It's been a bit of a renaissance for his career as his think tank has uh, veered away from what he needed to do as a politician to toe the party line to keep certain aspects of the country um, happy with what he was doing. He's actually had a quite a profound effect on the UK's um, vaccine rollout, things like... Uh, giving one jab uh, further apart from the other jab, which has turned out to be a calculated benefit, also the potential of mixing jabs. Um, Does that show that politicians are often a bit too beholden to politics in some way and and that if you're able to have a constructive opinion, it kind of doesn't matter where it comes from? Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny, and this is kind of what we were were alluding to earlier, is this idea that, not that he's a a loose cannon in any sense, but, you know, he has this very well-funded office. Um, He has lots of staff who presumably can bring him all the best research. Um, And, yeah, they're, they're not beholden to following, you know, a certain line of thinking, whether that's ideological or whether it's, you know, the, the primacy of this think tank versus this one. They can make um, much more objective assessments. I think one of the mistakes that we sometimes make is that those same conversations don't happen in high office. It's it's what the, it's how they then have to present those findings or to present their next moves in the in the light of them. Um, he was always a pretty thoughtful uh, politician. I think one of the things that's interesting about his willingness to really leap into this is that it is a public health crisis. And I think any politician, whatever their stripes actually in this country, looks at the public health in a slightly different way. And this is where I think the NHS specifically is very important. This also explains to a strong degree, I suspect, why we have such a relatively low anti-vaxxer movement and why we have such high general adherence in terms of public health policy. People trust the NHS and it's a very different animal than other even state-financed health service models. Um, People don't feel like it's the hand of big government on their shoulder or any kind of oppressive um, instructions or, you know, oppressive governance of their day-to-day behaviour. They feel like it is the nanny state, and I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean it in a positive way, a reassuring, it's like having some sort of avuncular figure watching out for you. Certainly in the older generation, I'm sure that's why. And I think... Blair can tap into that more readily because he understands the meaning of the NHS, having been, in a sense, its you know its, its defender when he was when he was prime minister. Oddly, the idea of having a wizened elder, a wizened kindly elder, uh, looking out for you is that really resonates with me. I don't is, know is, why. It's something I feel <laughs> sitting here opposite you. Um, anyway, I've spent far too much time talking about all that. So now it's time for our letter from New York City. Just go with us on this one, listeners. This week, Henry Reese Sheridan reports on Governor Andrew Cuomo's fall from grace, as well as another entirely tangential and completely unrelated story that I struggle to make sense of. Um, let's see what he's thinking, eh? Take it away, Henry. Embossed onto the right breast of the man's ice-white polo shirt is the great seal of the state of New York. Around the seal are the words performance, integrity, pride, and I work for the people. Just beneath this emblem, there is an ambiguous outline, the shape of a small bar, where you might expect the man's nipple to be. The man sits at a long table in a conference centre that's been turned into a hospital. 
It's late March of 2020. He speaks into a microphone on the end of a flexible stalk. Let me go through some facts, if I can, he says. The rate of the increase is slowing, he says. I want to thank our National Guard, he says. The man is Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York State. This press conference, and others like it, represent the crest of a reputational wave that Cuomo rode through the early months of the pandemic like some kind of gubernatorial Kelly Slater. He was perceived to have responded swiftly and effectively to the crisis, and he won the admiration of many. Now, people were speculating that the mysterious outline beneath his shirt at this particular press conference was evidence of a nipple piercing. Mixed with the pre-existing affection for the governor, this conjecture combusted into what can only be described as a frenzy of collective lust. From the battered id of the internet emerged the regrettable coinage Cuomo-sexual. For months, Cuomo was tucked into the pocket of the reputational wave I've already mentioned, getting tubed while his constituents cheered from the shore. Little did he or they know that the governor was cruising towards a wipeout by some gnarly political backwash. At the end of January of this year, an official report stated that Cuomo's administration underreported deaths from coronavirus among nursing home residents in the state, possibly by as much as 50%. The case is being investigated by federal prosecutors, and lawmakers have moved to strip Cuomo of emergency powers that he's held since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. In the midst of this controversy, Ron Kim, a Democratic State Assembly member from Queens, told a reporter that the Cuomo administration's motives in underreporting the nursing home data was to dodge incriminating evidence. Governor Cuomo took exception to this statement of the obvious. Mr. Kim gave an account of what happened next on the TV programme The View last Friday. Yeah, so it was last Thursday night. Uh, I was about to bathe my three kids when I received a call from the governor. He spent 10 minutes threatening my career and ordering me to issue a statement uh, that would be used to cover for the state secretary. The day before that call, the state secretary, Melissa DeRosa, had implicated his administration by admitting that they withheld life-saving nursing home data because they feared the information would be used against them. Kim's account opened the floodgates to reports of Cuomo's bullying. A spate of anonymous interviewees told the New York Times about the governor's temper tantrums, which were an open secret in Albany. Cuomo allegedly threatened to end the career of a staffer who failed to properly transfer a call to his office. His office was described as toxic and controlling. I was reminded how harsh the workplace can be, but I was also reminded by Ron Kim's example that there will always be people brave enough to stand up to oppression. And Kim wasn't the only American worker to stand his ground this month. 
at 5.25pm on February the 10th, police in Coolidge, Arizona, received an emergency call. The caller said an injured man was slipping in and out of consciousness near the town's water tower. When officers arrived at the scene, they found a man lying on the ground with his hands tied behind his back and a purple bandana stuffed in his mouth. When the bandana had been removed from it, the man, called Brandon Sewells, used his mouth to tell the officers of his harrowing trial. Sewells said he had been kidnapped by two masked men. They'd knocked him unconscious and driven him around in a vehicle before dumping him. The reason for his kidnapping? According to Mr Sewells, it was an attempt to get at his father's money, large sums of which were hidden throughout the desert. The Coolidge Police Department launched an investigation. Surveillance footage was reviewed. People mentioned by Mr Sewells in his account of the event were interviewed. But as the investigation progressed, Mr Sewells' story began to unravel. Text messages and calls described by Mr Sewells could not be verified. Hospital records revealed that he had not received the injuries he claimed were inflicted on him. Eventually, having been repeatedly confronted by police about the holes in his account, Mr Sewells admitted that he had fabricated the entire story. He had tied his own hands behind his back and gagged himself with a purple rag. And why? To get out of a shift at an auto shop he worked at called the Tire Factory. Brandon Sewells pulled the ultimate sickie. Both Assemblyman Ron Kim and Wasteman Brandon Sewells found themselves subjected to unbearable professional duress. Mr Kim was personally intimidated by the Governor of New York. Mr Sewells was expected to actually turn up to his job and then to do it. Most people in their position would abjectly capitulate to the powers that be, but not these men. They stood up for what they knew was right. In Mr Sewell's case, it might be more accurate to say he lay down in the middle of the desert, having bound and gagged himself for what he knew was right. Let us bear their righteous examples in mind when fate next calls upon us to do the right thing. And that was our very own slacker talking rubbish to avoid work. See what I did there? That's what he spoke about in the piece. Monocle's Bad Penny of a former producer and our current New York correspondent extraordinaire, Henry Reese Sheridan. What was he talking about, ladies and gentlemen? Moving swiftly on, uh, we're going to turn to Japan now. Uh, recently, a website in Yokohama has attracted attention for providing a platform on which people can complain about their neighbours, ostensibly to inform house buyers about local ball bouncers or dogs who bark too loudly, but isn't a little forbearance key to making our cities tick. Carlotta, I'll come to you because you know more than most about such things. Do you think this technology is intrinsically bad or could it help neighbours to have a constructive conversation? What I'm thinking is often um, when we communicate through backlit screens, it's less obviously linked to us. We tend to be more curt, ruder, quicker to condemn 
and um, a bit more unkind. But is the technology to blame or are all those awful people the problem? Um, I think it's a mix of both, <laughs> Josh. Uh, of course, whenever we have, you know, um, websites or platforms or apps like this, as you mentioned, it is really easy to completely disassociate the person behind the screen reading the messages you might be writing. And uh, that uh, allows for rudeness that wouldn't happen uh, face to face otherwise. Now, I do understand that particularly in Japan, a country where being loud is really not seen in a good way um, from public transport to, of course, your neighborhood, that this could be a very useful you know, app, a very useful website if you are indeed buying a house and you want to know how uh, rude (laughs) your neighbourhood is. But at the same time, it gets to a point that what about everyone's individual privacy and a bit of, you know, it's not your business to know, you know, if I like to exercise outdoors and make noise. It doesn't matter. Is that or, what you were doing? Oh, yes. Yeah, skipping over the rope, of okay, course. Okay, okay. <laughs> good to know. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a mix between the two, uh, between the privacy uh, that we're, of, of course, individually entitled to. But when we agree to live in a community, that needs to be taken into consideration as well. At the end of the day, it depends how it's used. An excellent answer. It's a bit like telling someone they smell. Isn't it, Tom? You know, if you do that publicly on a forum, say the website I set up recently about your um, unusual desk habits, then that that is seen as a form of cyberbullying. But if I quietly said to you, Tom, I think that boiled wool jacket needs a wash, that would be much kinder. Do you think these platforms are the place to discuss um, an air dirty laundry? I think it's very complicated. I, I, I agree with what, with what Carlotta said, sort of everything in moderation, a little of both. What I think the fundamental thing for me is, though, what really are the things that make uh, a great neighbourhood and if we go right back to the top of the show Carter, you talked about getting involved in you know, a bit of like kind of civic activism looking out for people in your building and on, and on the block um, now people may document that somewhere publish it online but where that really matters is in the experience of the beneficiaries of that largesse or of that time or of that courtesy and the things that really make a neighbourhood special I think are you know, that sense of people watching out for each other, literally and and metaphorically. Now, there are obviously digital tools to help do that. But really, I don't know, I just worry that you lose a bit of the humanity, which is kind of what what you're after with these things. The tools, if used well, can be incredibly help helpful. But how many people misuse them willfully or inadvertently? And I think that therein lies the problem. And so regular listeners may know I'm not the most enthusiastic devotee of all things digital other than the station of course i was gonna say don't you run a 24 hour day digital radio <laughs> a cer- station a certain irony but but i think you know it's better to measure these things measure the, the real metrics should be in in the real world neighborhood sh- should be about the, the physical thing how you engage with people how you talk with each other um and I think people should start there rather than on the next app, slightly controversially. But also another point is that we've we've mentioned on the urbanists a few times over the years is the importance, you know, when it comes to city living, of also allowing people to break some rules. Of course, mm-hmm. not full on become, you know, a criminal, but, you know, some rule breaking. You want to play some loud music on a Friday, you know, until 11 p.m., go for it. You know, enjoy life in the city. It's also about that, you know. Um, it might not be the best place for you to gather in that particular park by your house uh, but that's where you know uh, the youth go and have a bit oh, of fun the youth I've heard about them I know it's been a while Tom right <laughs> <laughs> well, just don't go googling them afterwards Tom I, I won't at all but yes I think uh, it is important that we 
when we decide to live in cities, that we allow some room for that rule breaking. And in the case here of noise, you know, if it's not uh, disturbing you too much, allow it once or twice. A bit of live and let live. Finally, before we go, there's a brand new issue of Monocle magazine out. It arrived yesterday. In the springy March issue, we've taken a look at sustainability, the importance of buying once and well, and shed a few bright ideas um, about things that actually sustain us. I did mean to discuss this in greater detail with our fine guests, but sadly, we're a little short on time. Tom Edwards and Carlotta Ribello, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks also to Carlotta for producing today's show so expertly. And finally, that's all the time we have. Today's programme was edited by Louis Allen. I'm Josh Fennett, and thank you very much for listening. Ta-ra.